0: what is consciousness? How do you know you have it? What was Galileo's error? Today we'll be covering these and many other topics, including a subject known by a strange, ominous-sounding term called panpsychism, which is not paranormal, but you may find it slightly abnormal after listening to my take on it. We talked today with Philip Goff, who's a professor and author of Galileo's Error, a wonderful book which I read and tried reaching out to him over a year ago, and it took me and him both getting on Lex Friedman's podcast for us to come together and record this episode earlier this year. We've had a phenomenal growth in the podcast, and I know that this episode is going to keep the fires burning and stoked with passion for more guests like Philip and many more to come. Richard Powers, winner of the Pulitzer Prize and I had a phenomenal interview. I know you're going to love it. It's coming up soon. And we have interviews with great thinkers like Professor Jarrett Lewis, who talks about questions that boggle the mind, including where did the universe come from. But today's mind-boggling conversation involves panpsychism and the notion of consciousness, the brain, and more. So I hope you'll sit back, relax, and enjoy this deep dive into the impossible with a deep thinker, Professor Philip Goff, author of Galileo's Error.
1: Let's go. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please Hal. Well, ladies and
0: gentlemen, philosophers of all ages, you're in for a treat today. We are talking with the really renowned uh, thinker, philosopher, author, professor, uh, Philip Goff, who I've been trying to get on unsuccessfully for over a year on the podcast. Uh, and somehow after I made an appearance on Lex Friedman and he made an appearance on Lex Friedman, the magic of Lex connected us. Right, uh, Phil? <laughs>
1: Oh, it's great to be here, Brian. I I had no idea you've been trying to contact me contact me for a year. No, I mean it wasn't Lex. I think the first you, you come, I, I saw you pop up on Twitter DM. I yeah, they've been kind of trying to contact me. For you. I'm sorry. Yeah, well,
0: you. I was using your website, which has a picture of a brain. I thought, you know, uh, selfishly, that's a Brian or that's a that's a plea. It's 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 a sign that you should you should be uh, receptive to a missive from me. And I I wrote mm-hmm. you, and uh, I think it was after you were on uh, Michael Shermer's show over almost really? like two years ago. Yeah, but anyway, you're here now. We have an hour together. We have a ton of stuff to cover. And you're talking about my favorite scientist in history, and you're claiming that he made an error, and that's Galileo Galilei. Uh, and I want to start off with, before we do my patented uh, judging books by the cover, where you're going to explain how you got the title and the cover design for the book, um, I want to start with a quote, and I want to know if you recognize this, and, and if this was perhaps the impetus for your uh, assertion, assertion rather that, that Galileo made an error, a blunder, perhaps as big as as, as could be offered. <clears throat> Here it goes. Okay. Is it payback for this statement made by Galileo? Okay. What is observed by us in the third place is the nature of matter of the Milky Way itself, which with the aid of the spyglass may be observed so well that all the disputes that for so many generations have vexed philosophers are destroyed by visible certainty. And we are liberated from those pesky philosophers, wordy arguments. That was in a book, a little known book called Sidereus Nuncius. Tell me, my friend, Phil, did you write this book to sully the reputation of a man who who sullied the reputation of all philosophers?
1: (laughs) No, I mean, I'm actually a huge fan of Galileo. And, you know, it's a provocative title. But actually, I think he had things a lot more right about about consciousness issues th- than we do now I- I- in certain ways, and um, and you know actually I mean one he was obviously a great experimental philosopher using telescopes to look at the stars for the first time, but actually I mean you see you have him there appearing to have a go at philosophers, but actually one of the things I talk about in the book I think Galileo is one of the few people to come up with a philosophical argument that convinced absolutely everybody, namely his refutation of Aristotle's view that people had believed for thousands of years that uh, heavier things fall faster. So, you know, you have this myth that um, Galileo went to the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and and dropped two weights. I think historians think that probably didn't happen. Uh, But actually, um, Galileo, rather, refuted Aristotle. Uh, not with experiments, but with a purely logical argument. And um, and so in a way, you might think not only is he uh, an opponent of philosophers, he's perhaps the greatest philosopher that, that ever lived because of that argument, but also because in many ways the, the philosophy that lies behind the scientific revolution. You know, we often forget there's a philosophy, a philosophical picture, a worldview behind science, and that was... Largely crafted by Galileo himself. Yeah,
0: yeah. What's so striking, and you go through that story in such uh, amazing, wonderful detail in Galileo's error. We'll get into that. Uh, but what's always spoke loudest to me about Galileo is that he was a human being, and <clears throat> when you think about, like, he destroyed the confirmation bias. Uh, of of Aristotle as you just pointed out but then later in in the dialogue which i've just translated or not translated but we've recorded the first ever audiobook by the time this interview with phil comes out uh, i recorded an audiobook with carlo Ravelli and frank wilcheck and uh, fabiola Giannotti and many others uh, and that's coming out it's the first ever audiobook by galileo but in that book he wow. makes the case for the uh, for the heliocentric model of the universe and he uses as a proof uh, the sloshing of, of water as the Earth rotates around and, and, and revolves on its axis. And that's totally wrong. And and yet, the, the underlying theory is right. And I want to ask you, in other words, he was right about geocentrism being wrong or heliocentrism being right, but he used a confirmation bias error. He made a, uh, an error. How is it, possible that we can get things right philosophically by thinking purely philosophically um, and yet be wrong at the same time. Doesn't that kind of call into question the ability of of the human brain to to be trusted on any level?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's funny how how these things work out, how great leaps forward can sometimes end up being mistaken in the the way they reached it, even though perhaps perhaps there was some underlying intuition or, or some i mean galileo's principle of relativity perhaps some deep intuition galileo had that you'll know the physics better than me so i shouldn't talk about things above my pay grade but you know maybe even if he didn't get the details right there was something right about his, his fundamental vision you know the, the the copernican the copernican vision underlying this and um uh, and the, the mathematical picture of physics, which is it's mainly what I focus on in my book. But you know, I think it, I think it, we we all, we all need to remember that we always think we're at the end of history. You know, human beings always think we're at the end of history. And you know, before Galileo, people thought you know Aristotle had basically wrapped everything up. You know, including that the the Earth was in the center of the universe. And and then you know, as things don't start to fit with the data, people try to f- plaster rather than looking to rather than challenging those fundamental assumptions people try to plaster over the cracks you know postulating epicycles of the planets in addition to their basic orbits <laughs> and then epicycles upon epicycles and then you know eventually this is just swept away by Copernicus's idea and then Galileo following him and you know I mean I sometimes think we're in a little bit of that situation ourselves now with with consciousness, for example, you know, we're just so convinced we're at the end of history and our basic worldview is correct. And when things like consciousness don't quite fit in, we, you know, we try to postulate the epicycles where maybe it's, it's time to do what Galileo did, which is, you know, think a little bit further, think to a kind of new paradigm, a new worldview. Right. And, uh, you know, this book is just such a fascinating
0: uh, exploration of both how we came to know what we know about consciousness, about um, about what we're going to get into, panpsychism, and, uh, and also where we go in the future. Uh, but before we get into all the luscious topics of this wonderful book, I want to first uh, play with you the game I play with all my authors who write books, and it's called Judging Books by Their Covers. Yeah, you're never supposed to, uh, you know, judge a book by its cover. But I learned, if I've learned nothing from you and my other philosopher guests like Peter Bagazian and, uh, and and Craig Callender here at UCSD, uh, it's that you have to reason to the to the proper inference. Uh, yeah, it's the only way that you can judge a book if you don't know anything is by its cover. How did you come up uh, with the title first of all, and the uh, cover cover design as well?
1: I have to confess that. Both of the books I've written, I didn't come up with the title for either. The title of my – so I, I first wrote an academic book, Consciousness yes. and Fundamental Reality, and David Chalmers came up with the title for that. And mm-hmm. then um, actually, uh, Nigel Warburton came up with the title for my book, Galileo's Era, which is it's, it's a kind of a similar themes but aimed at a, a general audience trying not to assume any unders- background understanding. So Nigel Warbur- Warburton's kind of a, a, a popular philosopher in the U.K., um, one of the few philosophers who earns his money just from doing ph- writing philosophy, but not needing an academic post. Very lucky <laughs> for some, but um, uh, and he has the the well, the wonderful podcast, the um, the uh, philosophy bites, very short philosophy, uh, you know, fifteen minute bites of philosophy, which is which I would wholly recommend. But anyway, he was someone who, when I was first starting to to try and think about how can I communicate this to a broader audience? Because there's this huge idea that's taken hold in, in, in academic philosophy and everyone's talking about it, everyone's publishing about it, but nobody outside of academic philosophy knows what the hell it's all about. And, you know, people care about consciousness and, you know, neuroscience and all sorts of areas. Uh, how can I get this idea out there? And he's someone who, a couple of people who really helped me understand how to write more excessively and I remember, you know, I I, I sent him a, a chapter and um, you know, he said, look this is just this is just an academic book without jargon. You know, you need stories, you need anecdotes, you need and um, you know, and I was sort of talking about the Galileo stuff and he said Galileo's error. And um <laughs> I guess it might have been maybe in the back of his mind there's a book, uh, Descartes era. um, Descartes' error. Um maybe there's some connection there. But I guess in a way it's in a way, maybe the title is is it, it, in a way, I think probably what Galileo did was the right decision because it sort of put consciousness on one side for a few centuries so that we could focus on building mathematical physics. so in in a way, maybe it was it was the right decision, but what w- what I mean by it being Galileo's error is that he designed physical science, I believe, in such a way that it essentially and necessarily excluded consciousness from the domain of science and i think it we're now at a time in history where we we need to maybe rethink that maybe find mm-hmm. a way of bringing consciousness back into the story of science so that's that's the that's the title the 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 uh the cover i uh, i think the the first few covers that the publisher sent i I really thought we were terrible actually. and it was uh, it was someone you know the designer I looked at them I really liked their other stuff but I just and I <laughs> talked to my editor and um uh my editor for the for the, for the book and, and I think he just put it together himself actually so we, we know we mm-hmm. had the the publisher had had the designer make some covers and um and Mm. Um, neither of us were happy with them i think he said i'm glad you didn't like it (laughs) um but um maybe i'm giving away some secrets here but this, this is a wonderful designer i think maybe maybe it was just not quite what we were looking for and so i think the editor not a professional designer just worked it out himself and um i think the idea was you know it's kind of an eye representing consciousness i think it's made up of fibers maybe representing particles in some sense yeah it
0: looks like a fiber like a particle track yeah somebody asked if it's uh (laughs) on my youtube channel where i solicit questions and folks should uh subscribe over there dr brian keating i solicit uh questions from the audience for all my guests uh and one of them was why is the picture you have here a grid circle that was one of the questions so i guess we've answered that now but let's go on to what i also, don't like to do, but but I feel like we have to do because people won't really understand uh, what what is the meaning of the title without a little bit of of spoilage. Although it is the first uh, first chapter, so they'll have to get through uh, you know the preface and buy the book to understand. I listen to the book; I love the audiobook. The reader uh, evokes your your wonderful, delightful Mercurial um, uh, persona, fella, You'll be glad to know. Um, what is it, Scaloios <laughs> Error? What does that even mean?
1: Yeah, the, the 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 narrator actually, I think, is is the star of Greece too. Incidentally, oh wow!
0: <laughs> so, father, so Carlo Ravelli who's no stranger to Galley. One of his books was narrated by Benedict Cumberbatch, and oh, I, I just yeah. love saying Benedict Cumberbatch. But uh, but that's pretty cool.
1: You have a Greece two narrator. That's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, he did a, He did, He did a really good job. Um, yeah. So that's. I mean, as a bit of background, I suppose a key moment in the scientific revolution is this decision of Galileo to make mathematics the language of science. and this is something like we take for granted now I think it's kind of obvious though, that it's almost inevitable but actually this was a very conscious and radical decision um, of, of Galileo to do this. and um, you know although this is much discussed, we, we actually maybe ignore the philosophical work that Galileo had to do to get there. As I say he was not just, a great experimental scientist, he was also a great philosopher. This was a time when these things weren't necessarily so sharply divided. And that the trouble was before Galileo, again, you know, following Aristotle, people thought quite naturally the world is kind of filled with qualities. If you think about my Batman cup here, there's the, the blueness and the yellowness out there on the surface of the object, or you know, the the heat, the quality of heat as I touch it smells tastes sounds all these things and i think for galileo the problem is it's hard to see how you can capture these qualities in a in a purely quantitative language like mathematics Hmm. Um, you know an equation can't pin down that blueness that quality of blueness if you if there's someone who's blind from birth you can't give them some equations and tell them about the blue you know there's lots of things you can pin down about the mathematical structure of color experience, but I think there's, there's there's always going to be the, the, the qualities that fill out that structure. Maybe we could argue about that. So, so Galileo's way of getting round this was to say, well, those qualities, they're not really out there in the physical world on the surfaces of cups. They're in the consciousness of the observer. So for Galileo, you know, the, the blueness isn't really there on the surface of the cup. It's in the, your consciousness as you look, it, look at it or the, you know, the age old thing, if a, when the tree falls in the forest and there's nobody there to hear it, does it make a sound? For Galileo, no observer, no consciousness, no sound. Mm. So Galileo sort of strips the physical world of these colours, sounds, smells, tastes. What's left when you do that? Just things like size, shape, location, motion, Properties, quite conveniently, you can capture in mathematics. So, so in this way, he allows us to mathematize nature, but he does that by taking consciousness and its qualities out of the domain of science. And he saw mm-hmm. them as not in part of corporeal matter, part of the soul or the animated body. He thought that the body has a special kind of animation Um, This was an element actually of Aristotle. He he retained. Aristotle had this idea of the the soul as a sort of the form of the body. So the proper domain of mathematical physics or what he called natural philosophy is um, what we can capture in mathematics, size, shape, location, motion. And we can do that because we've taken out consciousness and its qualities. That's in the soul. That enables us to do that. So the way Galileo designed science makes it inevitable. That consciousness will be excluded from the domain of science, cut forward four hundred years. Galileo's conception of science has gone so well, and people are like, oh my god, this this is this is really working. This is the complete truth. I think the irony is it's gone so well, precisely because it was designed to exclude consciousness. It seemed to me reading the book you
0: know with a physicist's hat on that it was not unlike the situation with Newton, you know constructing an absolute version of time. Uh, and in which, you know, events play out as time progresses. Uh, but time is somehow uh, absolute, universal, uh, and, and so forth. Is that was that kind of, uh, you know, influence of Newton on Newton, rather, did that come from Galileo's perception of con- or uh, dis- the thoughts on consciousness, or, or exclusion of it, as you say, to the, you know, to being sort of the independent
1: variable that on uh, upon which nothing can be more primary than? Yeah, that's a really interesting, and I mean, someone there is. Um, people might be interested. There's this collection of uh, 19 essays from scientists as, as well as philosophers, resp- including Carlo Revelli, who you mentioned, for responding mm-hmm. to my book Galileo's Era. And one of the contributors is Lee Smolin, mm-hmm. who uh, who think, who who argues that it kind of agrees with me that sort of Galileo took consciousness out, but thinks that the mathematical physics that's resulted. Also leaves time out, real time. Obviously, you have this, you know, physicists have this mathematical four-dimensional notion of time, but Smolin thinks they leave, leave out that the, the real dynamic passage of time. Um, so I, I, I don't know. It's an interesting historical question. I mean, the, 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 how Newton, uh, ca- his his conviction about absolute time and its relationship to Galileo. I, I my guess, my uneducated guess. Would well non-expert guess would be that absolute time is perhaps the common sense assumption. You know, it's more something radically new that came along with Einstein um, relative time. But maybe absolute time is more the common sense assumption. So maybe it was something Newton kind of focused on and made explicit. But maybe it was just something that 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 people would naturally would naturally assume so i mean i'm not sure how much whether i agree with Smolin. i would say you know i would say the reality of real quote-unquote dynamic time i would i would say we have to be much more agnostic about about that you know i mean i'm why maybe we're just maybe our ordinary conception of time is just wrong right maybe we should like i guess many people think physics has dispensed with that um I think. I think that matters are different when it comes to consciousness, though. I think that this is why consciousness is so fascinating. Not only is it hard to fit into our standard scientific picture of things, it's also so hard to deny it exists. You know. So this contrasts with, say, free will. You know, a lot of people get the idea that it's hard to get fit free will into our standard scientific story, and this is a big debate. But it's at least an option to say. Maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe we're mm-hmm. not really free in the way we think we are. But when it comes to consciousness, the idea that, well, nobody's ever felt pain, nobody's ever seen red or heard sound, <laughs> that just seems intolerable. So that's why it's such a fascinating issue. We can't deny its existence, and yet it's so hard to fit into our standard scientific story of the universe.
0: Yeah, you very uh, tenderly and interestingly point out, you know, these concepts of emergence uh, within physics. And I wonder, you know, to what extent uh, we could talk about consciousness without really understanding emergence. <clears throat> and I think the emergence here that I'm most interested in is how do, how do we unify, you know, kind of this concept of, of time or, or can you decouple the concept of time from the concept of consciousness are they fundamentally intertwined? And then there are many who say time is emergent and gravity is emergent. Everything is emergent. Uh, and so I guess my my question, you know, which which will now devolve into uh, a discussion about panpsychism after you hopefully can give us a your favorite definition of that, um, you know, will be well, can we really understand? As I think Philip Morrison said, you know, more is different, more is, you know, more, in other words, when you have a collection of individual things, they behave differently than n times those number of things. So the concrete question after this blathering on is, um, can we understand consciousness, time, gravity, whatever, um, uh, without a real understanding of how these things emerge um, and, and what their fundamental quality is? In other words, are we, as I often accuse my colleagues who are obsessed with theories of everything, I say, why don't you work on a grand unified theory first, you know, before you tackle all four forces, just unify the first three. <laughs> uh, and, you know, don't put the, the toe before the gut, I always say. So are we are we kind of doomed on a fool's errand because we don't understand how emergence really fundamentally works? Uh, can we understand consciousness with before we understand emergence?
1: Mm, that's a great question. And, you know, on everything other than consciousness, I'd be tempted to agree with you. You know how we have a kind of pre-theoretical understanding of what time is, of what freedom is, of what a person is, what value is. And then you might think, um, well, why should we think those pre-theoretical ordinary everyday person conception of those are correct? You know, like our, our, our ordinary concept of solidity maybe is like everything's filled in, but, why Why I think that's correct? Maybe, maybe it doesn't correspond to the reality. I just think, I think in the unique case of consciousness, things are a little bit different. And and, and that's because I think at least to some extent, we know what consciousness is before we do any science. Um, you know, so so a lot of people say, oh, it's a mystery. We don't know what consciousness is. I mean, I, 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 th- I don't like that way of putting it. I think, you know, in a way, nothing is more familiar than our feelings and experiences. That's all we're talking about with consciousness. You know, pain, pain. W- what is pain? It's um, Pain is just a feeling, and a feeling is essentially defined by how it feels, and you know how it feels when you feel it. Or think about a red experience. When we think about our red experiences, I always give the – I need to think of different examples. But anyway, think of that, you know, that that deep red you experience as you watch the setting sun. There's a quality, a quality to that experience that fills it out, and I think we we have some kind of rich understanding of 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 of, of what that is, just in the sense that we understand its its qualitative character. Right. Um, so we know something about what consciousness is from the inside, as it were. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, I think. We make all sorts of mistakes about our consciousness. Uh, the philosopher Eric Schwitzgabel has, has done some wonderful work pointing out the errors we make about our consciousness. But I, I want to say there are things we know about it before we do science and they can't be entirely wrong, I want to say. Maybe you disagree. like The way pain feels Um I don't think science could ever say, oh, actually, no one's ever felt hurt. No one's ever felt hurting, that hurting quality. That's a mistake. Or, you know, the the, the, re- the way redness looks, the way chocolate tastes. You- right. It can may be, be relative. It may be, re- yeah.
0: re- our experience may be relative. Uh, I may see, and call red something you know that you call red but i may perceive it in something that if i were in your brain you would see as green and that's the whole nagel thing by the way my my dream someday maybe you can help me uh, phil is to write a book called what is it like to be thomas nagel written by a bat anton Bat. <laughs> um, anyway maybe you can help me but but that's not that, that whole kind of perception as as uh, almost a different form of relativity but of course i agree with you and and i wonder if you you know consider this like have you ever met somebody who truly acts as if they don't believe they have free will? I know our friend Sabina Hassenfelder, many people believe in determinism, super determinism. And uh, she's going to be uh, coming back on the show for her new book coming out later this year. <clears throat> but I want to ask you, have you ever met someone who acts like they don't have free will? I've never, acted, I've never met someone. I may have acted like it, but uh, uh, what does it mean that people say that they believe that there's no free will and then they act purely in concert with the opposite of that, of that conjecture?
1: Yeah, that's a good. I mean, that's a really good point. I say it's an option to deny the reality of free will in a way that doesn't seem like an option with consciousness. But 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 can you really we have no choice out, but to deny that option? Can you can you really live that out? I was actually talking to a um, neuroscientist Michael Ferguson from Harvard, who, who uh, visited me here in Durham recently, which trying to make panpsychist connections, and he was talking about empirical work actually where people who do adopt a deterministic position and Reject, at least on an intellectual level reject the reality free will uh have let worse well-being so it can, even if you can't totally live it out just on an intellectual level believing it uh lowers your well-being i don't know whether that's true right. or not. but i mean even yeah. even, it makes even, sense. even in the uh consciousness case well by my co-host of my podcast mind chat if i could just quickly plug that is uh um, yeah. is, is um someone who says intellectually he does not believe in consciousness at least in the way i've just been characterizing it so you know the gimmick is i think it's everywhere he thinks it's nowhere but so i mean e- even on the consciousness case there are people um daniel Dennett, in certain moods who yeah. say um you know it just it just does not exist but to, you know to my mind that's a position really is the, 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 the at least the position of least resort. I think mm. we, we want to try and find ways of preserving both the data of empirical science, of course, but also the felt reality of our own experience, which, which I'm inclined to think actually is, is the only thing, the thing we are most certain of, you know, right? I, I believe right. in the external world, but you know, maybe I'm in the matrix, maybe I'm just dreaming, but, the idea that my feelings and experiences—I'm not really feeling anything. I don't, you know. I, so, I, so I think in what I want to say is the reality of consciousness as we experience it is a fundamental scientific datum in mm-hmm. its own right. And I don't believe, as a scientific community, we really treat it as such. Actually, no, I don't think we do. And then there's all these canards. Uh, you know, we'll
0: typically. Uh, someone thinks they're really sophisticated. You know, uh, am, uh, <laughs> professionals talk about you know inference and, and reasoning, and amateurs talk about Karl Popper, right? So, so the canard, <laughs> you know, people say, well, how do you know, you know, that this that uh, we live in a matrix? I had on David Chalmer, Chalmers last month for his new book, uh, Reality Plus. Um, which is not sponsored by Apple Plus, unfortunately for him, Uh, but it should be. It's a great book. Um, And, you know, and he goes through and he he comes up with some probability and we came up with an equation, which I named after him, the Chalmers equation, which is like the Drake equation, but for the probability of the number of different sentient uh, consciousnesses in the universe. At any rate, um, you know, he actually believes, you know, with, with some degree of co- high degree of confidence that we are likely simulated, but he's not so dogmatic. Uh, you know, David, he's not going to beat it down your throat. He's a star in your book, right? Um, on the other hand, you have people that are quite confident um, and, and, and even in possession of some data. So now I'm thinking about uh, Stuart Hameroff and past guest Roger Penrose. Uh, and thinking about their, their contributions, you know, to, to the study where they have actual data from, you know, their study of microtubules. I wonder if you could comment on these, you know, relatively controversial figures. I know they're, you know, probably your friends and colleagues in some sense, but, but what do you think about Chalmers, you know, simulation? If you had to give it a grade, um, first of all, Would you do? Is Popper really relevant? I I always say he even he didn't believe in falsification as absolute. But is Popper truly that relevant to the study of consciousness? We only have one mind of our own, at least. So is Pop does Popper play a role at all in the assessing the likelihood in some Bayesian sense of of veracity of 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 claims that you make or your colleagues make?
1: You mean Popper's idea of falsification, or
0: yeah, the fact that we can't falsify that we're not in the matrix.
1: You know, yeah, yeah. Well, I I mean. I think, as you say, often I think we get crude caricatures of proper, you know, crude simplifications of the idea. and um, But I, I think I prefer to think more in, as you say, Bayesian terms rather than, it's you know, it's impossible to totally, it's very hard to totally falsify anything. But I, I would rather think in Bayesian terms, like which hypotheses fit best with the evidence. It's very difficult judgment call to make but it's also a different question what what are the starting points for theorizing you know if if you're going to be a bayesian you've you've got to have your evidence what is our evidence i think a lot of people assume well it's 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 our evidence is the empirical observation experiments and that's definitely part of it but as i say i i I think that's not the full story because this is this other source of evidence we have just from our our, our, our immediate awareness of our own feelings and experiences. So I think, you know, what this calls for is is a radical reassessment of of what we mean by what what the task of science is. I think people think the task of science is accounting for the data of public observation experiments. You know, once you've done Mm -hmm. that, job done. We can go home. (laughs) Uh, Well, of course, you know, will we ever do it? But uh, if you religiously followed that, you wouldn't postulate consciousness because consciousness is not something... We discovered in a particle collider. It's not something we know from experiments. It's something we know from our immediate awareness of it. So this is why you know Daniel Dennett is very consistent. He says you know um, my my consciousness consciousness in the sense that philosophers talk about it is is not a postulation of third person empirical science. So it doesn't exist. Whereas I'd rather go the other way and say no. Look, there's this other fundamental datum we need to account for in addition to the data of public observation experiment. So that's why you know we need to think of the reality of consciousness as hard data. You know, you talk about pun psychism or wacky theories. We say, You know, what's the data in support of it? Well, the reality of consciousness is a data point in its own right on the simulation hypothesis. Uh, yeah. I, I, I said to me a uh, 25% probability on our podcast. Yeah, maybe, exactly. That's what he
0: said on the show too. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I, it's a very interesting argument and you know, it should be, it should be thought about. I, I don't think I don't go for it because I don't think a simulation would be conscious. I mean, that's a huge debate. It depends on mm-hmm. what's called substrate independence, whether yep. consciousness is dependent just on kind of computational organization right. or whether right. it's dependent on stuff. as a from bit, right, and the bit right. from it. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah kind of good consciousness
0: point. Consciousness is, yeah. Stuff. And I often think, you know, in terms of, like, extrapolating artificial intelligence, and you okay. and Lex Friedman talked about this, and, and you and Joe Rogan talked about this. We'll have links to all those appearances in the show notes. <clears throat> um, but the, you know, I, I I wonder often, and I've said this, I have my my Einstein finger puppet. I can't find my my Galileo finger puppets in the shop, I guess I, I broke up. <laughs> <that. clears throat> but, you know, do you know what Einstein called his happiest thought of his life, uh, Philip?
1: His happiest thought, I remember his greatest blunder. I'm not sure the happiest thought. No. Yes. So. Happiest thought was that, uh,
0: uh, someone in free fall would experience no gravitational force. I did know that. Uh, yes, I'm sure you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, I shouldn't have put you on General this. There's relativity. Point. Exactly. Which led to the equivalence principle. Very good. Uh, so, but, but I often think, well, like, uh, let's examine an artificial Einstein instead of AE AI, right? Okay. So, so, uh, How could such an object or entity or being have a sensation of happiness, A... And then B, how could such a sensation of, of falling weightlessness, how could that, you know, in other words, we we kind of impute to the, and I talked a little bit with Lex about that in, in my chat with him, but but the point is, you know, how do you imbue these things? In other words, would we recognize it if these things were conscious, uh, uh, you know, if we could create artificial consciousness, or maybe maybe they, or, or if there are other conscious, you know, ness things, are there, is it possible that there's sort of like, as Paul Davies says, you know, a shadow biosphere, could there be a shadow consciousness that we just cannot access because we don't have those proteins or we don't have language or you know, is that a possibility? Um, that's a, kind of the answer to the Fermi paradox about consciousness, so to speak, of why we don't see other consciousnesses.
1: Yeah, well, as the thing I am most passionate about conveying, I hope people who have heard me before probably get sick to death of me saying this, is that <laughs> the reason consciousnesses can't be totally treated in a normal scientific way is that it's not publicly observable. Now, uh, scientists are used to postulating things we can't observe but in in this case the thing we are trying to account for can't be observed and uh, can't be publicly observed I think that is totally unique and that's why I don't think you you can pin down a lot experimentally about consciousness but I don't think you can totally pin down the theory of consciousness with experiments because it's not a publicly observable phenomenon there's always going to need to be some kind of Inference to the best explanation. Yes, um, and I mean the, the the core. I mean, what what is so excited academic philosophy about? This Bertrand Russell inspired panpsychism that's sort of been rediscovered. Um, you talked about emergence a while ago. Is you know the standard way of thinking about things is how do we make sense of consciousness emerging from matter? Um, and we that this get the hard problem of consciousness. No one's ever, you know, despite our scientific understanding of the brain, no one's ever sort of come up with a good explanation of that—a good way of accounting for how consciousness emerges from matter. That what the panpsychist does is turn the explanation on its head. Right? Instead yeah. of thinking how consciousness emerges from matter, let's think about how matter emerges from consciousness. Um, and Russell's insight: the reason we can do that. Coming back again to Galileo is because physics is purely mathematical. So, because physics is purely mathematical, you know, physics just identifies these fundamental mathematical structures. So long as there's stuff <laughs> that through its interactions um, realizes those mathematical structures, then you can get physics. So, the panpsychist idea is well, it could be consciousness stuff we could have mm-hmm. these networks of simple conscious entities behaving in simple predictable ways because they've got very simple experiences they they th- through their interactions they realize these mathematical structures and that is what physics is studying you don't you don't know that when you're a physicist because you're just interested in the mathematical structure but that is what you're studying so in this way physics emerges from facts about consciousness so so what we've got to do is Thinking in terms of inference, the best explanation, you know, we know consciousness goes along with brain activity. What's the best explanation? I, I think the kind of materialist explanations of getting kind of trying to make sense of consciousness emerging from matter. I, I, it's a big argument. I don't think they work out. I don't think they've ever mm. had any shown any fruit. There's this alternative explanation. Maybe physics. And matter emerges from underlying facts about consciousness. And I think actually that's a much more straightforward explanation. So in, in in a sense of inference, the best explanation, I think this looks to be the best solution to the hard problem of consciousness. That's the so, well, well Let's
0: that's get into this. Let's psych, get into psychism in just a second. But uh, first of all, in the audience, <clears throat> we're speaking to uh, Professor Philip Goff of uh, uh, is it Durham University or University of Durham? I'm not sure, actually. I think I think you could say either. <laughs> okay, either way. Uh, and uh, the author of the phenomenal Galileo's Error, uh, featured on uh, Lex Friedman's podcast, Joe Rogan's podcast, and after you go on those two kind of you know up and coming stars, then you come onto the into the Impossible podcast. Uh, but he is also a podcast host of, a, a host of his own, uh, and uh, your podcast is called Mind Chat, and you can find that wherever podcasts are sold, and even on YouTube. Uh, And so I want to turn back to lastly to the to the before I turn it over to my audience uh, questions that they've submitted uh, via Twitter to Dr. Brian Keating and to Philip underscore Goff um, and uh, and on YouTube at Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube. And that's uh, another call back to our friend Galileo who said uh, the following. He said the sun with all those planets revolving around it and dependent on it. Can still ripen a bunch of grapes as if it had nothing else in the universe to do and i don't know if you've ever been to galileo's uh, a prison in uh, in florence but we hosted a conference on relativity there in 2015 and it's, it's a pretty nice prison you know i think uh i think <laughs> uh jelaine maxwell and others would love to be there uh instead of where they are right now uh but uh it has these you know grapevines and o- olive trees and so forth and it's a lovely, lovely place. But he often thought and mused about wine. And he said, wine is sunlight held together by by water. Um, and I want to ask you, can we learn about consciousness from the unconscious state? Uh, <laughs> thinking about uh, the anti-consciousness. Is there something that we can learn, you know, from sort of the counterfactual, uh, as Stuart Hameroff has, has claimed, he has special, you know, kind of privileges uh, because he's an anesthesiologist and so he can knock people out. And I say, I, I knock people out all the time, just come to one of my lectures. That's, I'll yeah. put in a drum roll right there. Uh, but but um, can we learn about it from, from its opposite, unconsciousness?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, the way I think about consciousness science, consciousness research is that it's, there's a theoretical aspect and a and a and, a, and, a, and a and a and an experimental aspect. so the the experimental task is to try and pin down what's called the neural correlates of consciousness, which kinds of brain activity go along with which kinds of experience and more generally, which kinds of brain activity are necessary and sufficient for consciousness in general? Um, that's really important data, but i I think that always leaves open the the, the more theoretical question. Why, why, why do these two things go together? And, and there, I think we're back to the inference to the best explanation thing. It's the first time I put it in, in terms of inference to the best explanation. I don't. When I was on Joe Rogan, I don't think I managed to convey to him what the hard problem of consciousness was. And I was thinking. Yeah, she- after, it's it's the host fault, you know.
0: If if you can't bring out the best in your guest, you should think of another profession. Maybe like, you know, epidemiology is what Joe should be doing.
1: <laughs> Just kidding, Joe. I, I loved what you did. I was thinking afterwards maybe I should have talked about inference the best explanation, maybe that's a better way to put it. But um but yeah, yeah that's exclusive. in terms of the experimental task, yeah. It's it's about thinking of trying to pin down as best we can, and it's very difficult, where consciousness is and where consciousness isn't. You might think as a panpsychist, isn't it everywhere? Well, mm-hmm. yes and no. A panpsychist thinks at the fundamental level of reality, maybe particles or fields, there's consciousness, but they don't necessarily think at the macro level it's everywhere. They would tend to think that the the, the, um, the circumstances in which simple conscious entities combine to form complex conscious entities are maybe quite rare, maybe natural selection, as, as it were, discovered this and exploited it. Um, so, so, you know, pinning this down, you need to, t- you need to be guided by, by the, uh, b- by the science. So science and philosophy really needs to be work hand in hand here. And mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of it is because it's not publicly observable. We have to do the best we can. You can ask people, you can, the, the so-called no report paradigm, you can look for sort of external mm-hmm. markers and make you people look, unconscious you can look where it's absent although it's even then, it's tricky you know do people really have dreamless sleep or is it just experience what that you don't remember you know waking experience is um connected up by memory second to second whereas mm. often when you're dreaming it's not so much you can be suddenly somewhere else and you don't notice so maybe a so-called dreamless sleep is just where the the chains of memory collapse, and you're just having streams of experience, mm. well, not knowing from one moment to the next. So it, it is, it's very, very hard, even just with the experimental science. I, I don't know if it's true or
0: not, but um, <clears throat> a friend of uh, the show, Kim Stanley Robinson, he wrote a wonderful book, which if you haven't read, it's called Galileo's Dream. Uh, You would love it because in the book, Galileo suffers from these what they're called syncopes, which I think he did in real life, um, kind of fainting spells. And and Kim uses that or Stan uses that as a vehicle uh, that really engages the the concept of time travel and space travel. I won't ruin it, although it occurs very early in the book uh, where Galileo. During those moments of epileptic seizure, apparent to the outside observer, Galileo is actually being teleported to the future on the moon Europa uh, that he, of course, discovered. Uh, and, uh, and it goes back and forth using this vehicle of these syncopes or epileptic seizures perhaps, um, and uh, of unconscious to the external observer. But I wonder, it would be really fun to have you and, and Stan, you know, kind of uh, gather around and talk about these these issues. Because um, uh, that that's obviously fictional. But um, but but I think there is something that we could say as this problem of external observation and how that may preclude you as sort of a barrier that we have to tunnel through to, to gain greater clarity. I want to, I, I can't, I'd be remiss, you know, I, so like when David Chalmers is on the show, I asked him, you have to define the hard problem of consciousness because it would be like you go to see someone in your beloved country by the name of ACDC and they don't play Back in Black or they don't play, you know, You Shook Me All Night Long. You feel kind of ripped off. So my audience will feel ripped off, Phil, if you don't explain
1: panpsychism. Panpsychism. Well, I mean, in our simple way of, in our standard way of thinking about things, you know, consciousness exists only in the brains of highly evolved organisms and and so only exist you know in a tiny part of the universe and only in very recent history at least in terms of the history of the universe but for the panpsychist consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it uh so it sounds kind of wacky i mean i suppose i suppose the thought is you can think of it as an alternative research program right We've been trying, banging our head against the brick wall for many decades now, of trying to explain consciousness in terms of utterly non-conscious processes in the brain. Um, I would argue that's, I mean, we've done a lot that's good, understanding the brain and consciousness. But in terms of explaining consciousness in terms of patterns of neural firings, I think, you know, how the brain produces a kind of inner world of colours, sounds, smells, tastes. I think we've got nowhere with that. The panpsychist tries an alternative research program rather than explain consciousness in terms of the non-conscious. We try to explain very complicated forms of consciousness in terms of simpler forms of consciousness, simpler forms of consciousness, which are then postulated to exist as just fundamental constituents of matter. Um, so that's that's the start of it. And the, and the, the Russell stuff I talked about earlier is it is an important part of spelling that out in a little bit more detail.
0: Now, if we have a um, concept in in physics related to emergence, uh, but but really it's it's mostly like linearity, I think about you know let's say there is because you know the and and I hope it's okay to criticize you with with love or not you but the theory yeah, the theory is oh panpsychism is everything's conscious is rock is conscious my mouse is conscious. This mouse, not the uh, one running around in the background. Um, everything's conscious. Yeah. But that's not really what it is, right? I mean that is not a full accurate description of panpsych I I think by the way it suffers from a from a PR problem. When you hear panpsychism, you ask someone at the sure. checkout counter at, at the Whole Foods they're going to say, "Oh, it's about psychics." So I, I think it gets a bad rap because of its uh, moniker, but um, but it's not really true that everything has consciousness. Is that everything, as I understand it, participates in in the conscious observer uh, observe or the process of what we uh, deem as consciousness?
1: Is that right, or is it true that you know uh, electrons are conscious? No, right. Yeah, and I think there is. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Annika Harris, who's somewhat sympathetic to panpsychism, among other views. You know, mm-hmm. thinks something problematic about the name. I kind of think maybe we're stuck with it now. And I mean, literally, it does mean everything. Mind pan everything psyche, mm-hmm. but yeah, pan is these days. This, as I say, the standard view would be that the fundamental level has things have consciousness. So, l- l- for the sake of simplicity, you know, we could think about fundamental particles like electrons and quarks. So the view w- would be that they have incredibly simple forms of experience so we're not talking about you know the kind of experience a human being has you know by consciousness to be clear we're just talking about any kind of subjective experience our consciousness is very complicated the result of millions of years of evolution you know a horse's consciousness is simpler a mouse simpler again a bed bug if bed bugs have consciousness it's going to be much much simpler for the panpsychist, this keeps going right down to the fundamental building blocks of matter, which on the panpsychist view have incredibly mm-hmm. simple forms of experience to reflect their incredibly simple nature. And then the thought would be the ultimate aim of the explanatory program is to make sense of those little forms of consciousness combining together to make more complicated forms of consciousness, and we thereby ultimately get an explanation of the the consciousness of humans and other animals that we're pre-theoretically committed to. I mean, I'm just over, seeing as I'm talking to a physicist. I'm oversimplifying by talking about particles, but there are also, you know, field-based versions of of uh, panpsychism, and maybe even, mm-hmm. you know, conscious wave functions. Or so um, so often it's put in terms of conscious particles, but that's just sort of for ease of exposition. I think. Great. Um, okay, well, so, so just Chad. So it doesn't it doesn't literally mean. Every combination of particles is conscious in its own right. So so this cup might not have its own consciousness. It's just made up of little things that are conscious. In some very very simple way, Dr. right? Yeah, and uh, again, you know, just because something has the
0: name, you know, uh, consciousness. I mean, again, physicists used to be called natural philosophers. You know, uh, used to have uh, you know, physicians and so forth. Used to be physicists. So yeah, just the name shouldn't be, uh, you know, construed as a shibboleth or some some anchor uh, around the field. Uh, but yeah, I agree. It would be great to sort of uh, modify it at some point. But we've got so many questions from the audience. Uh, I, I, I feel, and I hope that we can do a part, a part two someday, but I do want to get to a couple of them just while I have you here and who knows uh, what the future will bring. Hopefully it'll bring you to America at some point and me, the UK, and we can do this in person. But the first question comes from a, from a a fellow, well, he's a member of the great Britain, at least I think you guys are still unified in Scotland. And that's uh, a man by the name of Lee Cronin also guest on Lex Friedman's show, also past guest on my show. Um, And Cronin criticized uh, panpsychism today on Twitter by saying panpsychism appears to not be a real thing. It has no conceptual or philosophical or cultural meaning. It just reflects the the void in our understanding, which should be filled by more sensible discourse. I'm happy to be wrong, but tell me why. And he sends you his, his love and affection, by the way.
1: Thanks, Lee. That's great. Yeah. Oh, I saw that on Twitter this morning. I didn't realize it was it was connected. This that's great. Um yeah. So again, it's I get. I guess it's um a couple of things. I, I suppose in some ways I'm repeating what I've already said, but part of this is I think you know we, we we have in contrast to other cases we have some grip of the phenomenon of consciousness before we do the science. So we've got an explanandum, something that needs explaining. Which you know, contrast with like with anything else, you know. We d- usually we don't know what the hell the thing is before science tells us. You know, what is this stuff? Maybe it's a fundamental element, as the Greeks thought. Science mm-hmm. comes along and tells us it's H2O. Or, um, you know, when you see lightning in the skies, maybe it's the anger of the gods. Science <laughs> comes along and tells us it's electric discharge. But with, like, pain, I think we already have a somewhat of a grip on, on what it essentially is. You know, we're talking about... Sp- Things that are defined by how they feel, and we know how they feel, or defined by the the character of the experience, and we know the character of the experience at least to a rough approximation. So that's an important part of why I think this is this is an, a very very different to other scientific cases. Mm. And then I mean, I suppose that, 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 that there's that this is just there's no explanation. I mean, I think there are now detailed explanatory um, pro, you know, detailed explanatory. Claims about how exactly if you could you might want to look at my, my paper on my website, how exactly does panpsychism explain consciousness? Where I, you know, <laughs> try and lay out a detailed explanation of how you know, an empirically credible explanation of how human consciousness emerges from consciousness at more fundamental levels. And it's 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 gonna work, as I say, hand in hand with the experimental science, you know, like another a really good panpsychist of Hassel Merck spend a year with Giulio Tononi spelling out in her panpsychist terms the integrated information theory so the two are going to work together but i, I you know i i think there are detailed explanatory views here so i suppose i'd want to say well te- you know tell me what's the, in the details what's going wrong there and maybe yeah. maybe what puts people off is because as i say because consciousness is not publicly observable there's always going to be it's not going to be totally pinned down by the data you can't look in a quark and see if it's conscious just as i can't look in your head and see if you're conscious <laughs> so it's always going to be a role for inference to the best explanation mm. even once all the data's in and yeah. we going to talk about but i mean i think it's in a way it's easy because i think i think the materialist doesn't have an explanation. It doesn't have a solution. I mean, they often admit that. I have a lot of friendly arguments, strong but friendly arguments with the neuroscientist Anil Seth, who says, yeah, look, we don't have an explanation to the hard solution to the hard on the consciousness, but his view is just ignore it and it'll eventually go away. I, I sometimes <laughs> call this ostrich materialism. You stick yes. He's his head in the sand. And, uh, so materialism doesn't have an explanation. Panpsychists have all these now, pretty detailed explanations. What, what, what's, what's not to like? And um, mm-hmm. you know, that's where I think you get panpsychism. spent a lot of time sort of just justifying its existence. But what's mm-hmm. happening now is people just getting on with the research program. Scientists and philosophers coming together uh, to see what fruit is yielded from this. And you know, that's what's really exciting. I think amazing.
0: Okay, well, one more last question, because I can't resist. Uh, this is from Eugene Bird on my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating. Professor Goff is fascinating. His ideas about cosmology, but his accent and his manner of dress give him movie star potential. Oh my
1: uh,
0: I would like to know whether or not his theory and the possible origin of the universe has shifted or not. So if you could briefly address that. I'm actually not familiar with your theory on the possible origin of the
1: universe. I, of um, I thought I thought he was going to say, but his his accent and dress is ridiculous. I didn't get, I didn't get the movie. That was the movie You've got, a You've got a, a fan here. Um, i got a fan. now. I don't know what, what what maybe what he has in mind. That may, I mean maybe I've sort of um, I've had some speculative ideas about explaining the fine tuning. You know the mm. the, the surprising discovery that I mean you know that. It seems that, for example, the cosmological constant is, mm-hmm. I, 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 is has an unexpected value, and that it's that it's so so very small but non-zero. But it also seems kind of like a number of constants in physics seem kind of just there's just the right values for life falls in a narrow oh. range. Some people postulate God to explain this. Some people postulate the multiverse. I used to think, oh, it's probably the multiverse, but actually. It's a big, big story, but I, I, have actually come to think that the inference from the, the whole anthropic reasoning that justifies the move from fine tuning to multiverse, I think, is is a bit fallacious. So, so I was messing around this idea. Well, look, if we've already got a conscious universe, maybe it's sort of fine-tuned itself. Maybe we can make sense of some kind of goal-directed activity uh at the level of fundamental physics and actually i'll be talking about this i'm currently writing a book where i might sort of explore this a, a, a little bit more so oh, wow. um yeah i mean i i feel very silly talking about it and it, it you know culturally it seems preposterous to me but i don't like the god option i don't like the multiverse option that there, there does seem to be this fine-tuning problem so maybe maybe a conscious universe that designed itself is the uh is the one to go for, even though I I feel very silly saying it. (laughs)
0: Well, that's lovely, and uh, appreciate the compliments there, Eugene. Okay, we'll have to come back to part two. We've got about 50 other questions, Phil, so if someday you're willing to come back on, I would be uh, most delighted to host you and answer remaining questions, and maybe we'll do a friendly debate with David and uh, Stuart Hameroff or folks like that. But for now, I'm wondering if you are willing to go and play the game that we call The Thrilling Three. Okay, these are my existential questions designed to elicit uh, from my guest the uh, the stuff that matters most in life, which is your wisdom, not just your knowledge. I think you've impressed the universe and my fans, especially with your, with your knowledge. But let's talk now about wisdom and start with, uh, with the very first one of all, which has to do with uh, your departure from this mortal coil, as the bard once said. Uh, and that has to do with when you depart at age 120 or later, perhaps, and you get uploaded to the great uh, cloud, uh, perhaps. Uh, what wisdom or knowledge would you want to impart in your so-called
1: ethical will. What is in your ethical will? I think one thing I'd say is, that I've already touched on, is never assume you're at the end of history. I think this is a perennial problem with humans. We always think, oh, we've got it all sorted now. And something always comes along and starts to show cracks, you know, consciousness, maybe this fine-tuning stuff. And we try to plaster over the cracks, but always be open to the possibility that your fundamental assumptions are just wrong and you know thinking more kind of the meaning of life and so on um i've come to think you know it's hard to be happy if you approach things saying what's going to make me happy you know what do i want out of life i kind of think you have to find something bigger than yourself that you're going to live for you know whether it's God or socialism or the advancement of science or curing cancer or something. I think I think, in my, in my experience, real happiness comes from finding something bigger than yourself that you can live for the sake of. And I think that's, that's imp- very important.
0: Indeed it is. Uh, and the next question has to do also with the future, but not your immediate future, but rather the future of our species, the universe perhaps. Uh, And that has to do with uh, sort of the knowledge or wisdom you would put in or on your monolith. And you might know in Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey featuring a conscious artificial intelligence by the name of Hal. I'd love to get your opinion on Hal someday. Uh, But these are monoliths that appear throughout the show, beginning in the African savanna and progressing to the moon. And we don't know what they are. They could be time capsules. They could be warnings. They could be just whatever uh, uh, giveaways left or, you know, the, the future equivalent of a CD-ROM. Who knows? Uh, what would you put in it to express what scientists in your field have discovered uh, that is would be most impressive to an alien civilization?
1: I think I'm going to have to say the thing I'm most passionate about, which is that the reality of consciousness is a fundamental scientific datum in its own right, over and above the data of public observation and experiments. You know, I think this is something we 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 still haven't totally got on board with as a scientific and philosophical community. I, I believe we I believe we we will do at some point and I think it's gonna to totally revolutionize how we think about the world, how we think about science and its relation to human knowledge. So yeah. if the aliens see that they'll say, Alright They've moved on from that materialist phase. They're doing okay.
0: (laughs) All right, Phil. The last question involves the past, not the future. And this has to do with what is known as Sir Arthur C. Clarke's Third Law, which states the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible. That's the origin of the name of this podcast. I want to ask you, Phil. What mysterious aspect of life might have perplexed you or or given you some concern or trouble as a 20 year old, Uh, but now makes sense uh, and and give yourself kind of the advice to your former self
1: uh, that would give you the courage to do as you've done to go into the impossible. I think I would say to my younger self, the long dark night of the soul doesn't last forever. (laughs) I think I've had a lot of, you know, I just oh, the theory doesn't work. you discover this just doesn't work at all and you think this is I'm gonna have to or writing writing my popular book for the trying to write for a general audience for the first time and getting these responses saying this is not a this is not a popular this is not a book for a general audience or you know mm. when I was David Chalmer's postdoc I'd be I'd work a couple of months on a theory and he'd come up with an objection that destroyed the whole paper and so you know they, <laughs> those things feel devastating at the time. But often they're, you know, the things that are most important for bringing you to a better place. So I like the phrase um, from uh, Samuel Beckett, try again, fail again, fail better. I think that's yes. a, the other the <laughs> other thing that's been an important realization for me, I think, is also try try to get in the mindset of people you disagree with. You know, I think at one stage as a young man, I was trying to win the argument, you know, mm-hmm. oh, you're an idiot, you're... But then really getting curious about, you know, trying to look out of the eyes of the person you're arguing about. Well, why are they thinking these crazy things, you know, trying to get inside their head? Yes. And sometimes you can change your mind. But even if you don't, I think it inevitably leads you to a, a, a deeper understanding of your own view. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that's so important to try and understand the people you disagree with. Wow. Well.
0: It has been a great pleasure coming to understand you a little bit more. Uh, plug yourself for just a second. Uh, where do people find you on Twitter and your podcast and elsewhere?
1: Yeah, I'm always arguing with people on Twitter. Uh, Philip underscore Goff. Philip with one L. G-Goth, Goff. G O um, F F. PhilipGoffPhilosophy website. I got lots of things there, academic and otherwise. Uh, mind chat my podcast where we interview scientists and philosophers. We had a great one about free will today with a a very good philosopher who believes in free will. And um, there's a blog there on my website, a link to um, my book Galileo's error, I guess. Yes, Uh, of
0: course. Wonderful. Well, Phil, I want to thank you so much. Uh, I've been such a delight, and I hope that you'll agree someday to do a part two, and hopefully you'll be in the chat room when we actually air this live, or air the recording of it in real time. You'll be in the live chat, interacting, and hopefully passing the Turing test. Absolutely. Thanks,
1: much. I can't believe I didn't realize at all you tried to contact me a year ago, and I'm uh, I'm so glad we finally connected up by... It was uh, meant to be. It uh, was meant pastor. to be, my friend. Thanks for having Thank me. you. Bye. Thank you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
0: Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Philip Goff. He and I had a great, great chemistry and rapport, and, and I do hope he'll be back on the podcast whenever we talk about things like the simulation hypothesis, consciousness, the brain, and the origin of... One of the most important topics in all of science, as he evidenced coming from way back when in the 1600s with Galileo Galilei himself, my friend. And don't forget, I have a new project with my friend Carlo Ravelli, Frank Wilczek, James Gates, Fabiola Giannotti, and others, which is the Galilean Dialogue, the project that we took over a year to put together the narration of this wonderful contribution to human history. And I know that you'll love to listen to it, and you can get it wherever books or audio books are sold. Uh, but in particular, go to my website. Go to uh, briankeating.com dialogue, and you'll find some free links there. You'll even find an NFT, which you may want to procure for yourself. And while you're there, I hope you'll check out the other podcast that I uh, do run, which is called Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner, and I hope you leave a rating and a review. On this podcast uh, and I want to read one. I read every single one even the ones that don't really agree with me so much for example we have a, uh, a statement from the 80s villager via Apple podcast just today who called me and Eric Weinstein a cowardly cowardly lions he only gave us or she only gave us three stars and that's okay sometimes that happens you can't please everybody uh, but they say I'm lacking the courage and Eric and I lack the courage to take a stand or even discuss the compromise of Roe versus Wade and the point of viability. Okay, well that is, uh, that is your prerogative and I've had uh, deeper criticisms with fewer stars for less. But I do hope that if you enjoy it or if you just want to give me feedback and advice or recommend guests that you leave a review. It's really one of the best ways the only way that Apple allows me to communicate with you guys directly is by you leaving a rating and a review. Uh, you can leave actual a voice message for me on my website at the com slash podcast, and there you can also sign up for my twice monthly newsletter where I share the most fascinating tidbits from around the world of science, including astronomy, space, engineering, and just incredible discoveries that colleagues and people I respect are making, and sometimes I give you cool tips and tricks and hacks that I use and I find to be quite genius. So that's called my Monday Magic Message, where magic stands for memory, appearance, genius um, image and conversation, which is the interview that I do. And I always link to my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating. we're over 61,000 beloved subscribers on YouTube. And I have short form explainer videos about all sorts of things ranging from dark matter to black holes, to wormholes and other kinds of holes, magnetic monopoles. Uh, many other things i do hope you'll enjoy coming there but please if you want to give a little bit of feedback to me please uh, do leave a review we have over 500 reviews around the world is amazing most podcasts don't even get to 50 reviews i'm more than 10 times that i i have such gratitude for you guys all the way out there and uh, i want to learn i want to learn i want to get better i'm trying my best to get better like those I look up to, and I hope that you will give me some constructive feedback and also encouragement to keep going. Because, you know, I don't really do it. I have some advertisers. I I appreciate those, but I'm really doing it because I want to share the wisdom of these great, phenomenal minds that I have gotten to know over the years, and I want to share them with you and uh, in a way to make the world a more interesting, curious place. So for now, yours truly, Brian Keating, long-winded outro. Thanking you so much for being a part of this project and wishing you the best of experiences as you go into the impossible. For now, signing off. Until next time, take care.